Hyperscalers refer to expansive cloud service providers capable of delivering enterprise-scale computing and storage services. These hyperscalers like Google, Amazon, and Facebook that all have huge data centers are either running their own software or renting out this infrastructure realized a long time back that the traditional network storage and compute server racks were not enough to fulfill the requirement of a modern enterprise at scale. So they built custom solutions for their data center requirements. For all of the other companies and organizations that have their own data centers, they're still running legacy old technology. Oxide Computer is a company aiming to democratize access to rack-scale technology and provide a seamless software stack to facilitate its implementation. Brian Cantrell is the co-founder and CTO of Oxide Computer, and he joins us in this episode. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Jordi Mon Companies. Check the show notes for more information on Jordi's work and where to find him. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Hey. I think this is your, it, it is not your first appearance on the show. I'm fairly sure about that. Can you correct me if I'm wrong? I think that's right. I think I may have been on software engineering. Maybe like, I mean, like years ago, I think like, like maybe more than five years ago. I think it's been a while. Yes. Yes. So uh, you've mostly moved out of or away from Twitter. Uh, so a, your recent talk at, at uh, Monktober and the Monktober Fest uh, hosted by the brilliant guys at Redbank, uh, you said that it all starts with a tweet. So if you've moved out from or away, away from Twitter, does that mean there's no more talks coming up? Uh, does it? Does the, the, you're not starting anything, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, actually, you know, I I, I say that I've moved away from Twitter, um, but, but I it's think not like true. a lot. Oh God, like a lot of people, I uh, you know I'm. Um, so, I mean, right now, sadly, right now I'm on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Mastodon. So, like, I don't even know if, you, you know, I, I don't even know what's going on. So, the the meme, that meme from The Sopranos that just when you think you're out, it the gravitas of Twitter just pulls you back in. It's so true. Well, you know what it is? And, and actually, and hey, Blue Sky, if you're listening, you need to give people some unlimited invites. I know you're going to have scalability problems, but the, uh, you, because, and I, I think like a lot of people have this issue where I have got, you know, ultimately Twitter is not one community. It's a bunch of sub communities. And I've got, you know, we've got our, and it's not just software engineering as community, right? You've got the Rust community. You've got, um, you, you've got kind of the FPGA open hardware community. You've got the, and, a bunch of these technical communities have actually moved to, and I noticed that like when I when I tweet or toot something out, I guess in Mastodon's parlance, um, something that's technical that gets a lot more traction on Mastodon than it does on. So a lot of technologists have rightfully said that they're fed up with the way the company's being run and so on, and are on Mastodon Blue Sky. The what has sucked me back in is um, I am uh, I'm an Oakland A's fan. We live here in the East Bay, um, and the and the, currently going through a uh, the, the, not that you would follow American baseball, but uh, the the Oakland A's are living the plot of a movie, um, a a movie with a diabolical and stupid owner, John Fisher, who is uh, and. So the, the, he's trying to move the team, and it's this whole saga. Oh, from the city, away from the city, from the city, to moving oh, to Las wow. Vegas. It, oh, it, it's a, it's a, it, it's a big, big mess. 
Uh, and it, I mean, it's also like great in that the fans are standing up and 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 uh, and protesting, and that's been all. Uh, but it, it's been oh, wow. very um, th that community has been really important. It's community that's always been important to me. But that community, that Oakland A's community, is still very much on Twitter. On Twitter, um, yeah. So, yeah. It, it, so I, uh, I I I find like you really need. Um, and like weather Twitter is still on. Oh, I wonder if you go to weather Twitter at all. Weather Twitter is amazing. Uh, weather Twitter is still on Twitter. Yeah. I, go, go back to the, you know, there is something about the tech slash software community. And it, I guess it has to do with the politics of each one of the community and that, something that I don't want to delve into. Uh, but that's my only explanation to why the core of, yeah, the software community is tech community has moved out from Twitter almost completely. I, I I live in that space, but I'm not a technologist myself. I'm not a developer myself. And um... well, I think that, that, and I think in this regard, I think that, you know, software engineers in particular are, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the malpractice at Twitter, I think it is particularly upsetting to software engineers, rightfully so. Um, I think that the, so yeah, I, I think that uh, it, in this, I think probably is the future. I think that the, it is probably the future that is is going to be more fragmented. Um, and I think this idea, I, I, you know, we kind of talk about what's going to replace Twitter. And I think in the indefinite future, I think lots of different things are probably going to replace Twitter, even though it's kind of a pain in the butt. So, but wait, you just said that most of the communities apart from that one remain at Twitter. So, do you reckon? Well, so I, well, what I found is that like, so for example, this Oakland A's community is still very, very much on Twitter, um, but my, you know, tech is on Mastodon, other communities are on Blue Sky. And I think that it, it, this is probably, and then a, a bunch have moved to other spots. Um, so um, the, I mean, cause then you get the whole Reddit nonsense that's happening at the same time. So I, I think it's fair to say that social networking is in the midst of a lot of upheaval at the moment, uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how it settles. Um, I, it, but but of course you got this. You know, to go back to your essential question, where am I going to have my hot takes that become the foundation for future talks? And your spaces, your Twitter spaces, which are uh, highly missed. Yeah, I, yeah. So the well, we actually do that. We that I think Discord has has broadly replaced Twitter. We we we, we definitely got off Twitter spaces, but so. Anyway, we, we will find outlets. I will find outlets for my hot takes. I mean, that's is extremely important, obviously. So we got we have to have a place to have, have our hot takes that become the inspiration for future talks. So that's the humanity's most dire problem, clearly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So referencing again the talk that you gave at Mumatova, which everyone uh, can find on YouTube. It was uploaded a few months ago. The event took place, well, a few months ago, almost a year. I can't really remember. It's in Portland, Maine. Yep, I'm not late wrong. Late uh, and um, and you talk about many things in that talk. I mean, you've you've been a long time speaker at that conference, but the last one you mentioned specifically the spirit of Silicon Valley, right? Uh, and you actually mention it in ways that are for you not. You describe it in ways that are not only inspiring for you, but you actually portray yourself as a, as, as a son of that. There's affiliation. Uh, um, so to talk to me about, please, the what is. How would you describe the idea of Silicon Valley, and why do you feel that yourself, professionally and personally, you're a son of that uh, uh, idea and a generation previous to you? Yeah, and and when I say that, unfortunately, I think Silicon Valley um, has um, 
it has transitioned over the years. And I, I would say that that I view myself um, as uh, in the spirit, in the original spirit of yeah, Silicon a specific, Valley. A specific, with, yeah. Yeah, when he, in, in particular, I mean, the, the, the roots of, of Silicon Valley were um, the, the uh, these engineers coming out to Shockley Semiconductor and uh, realizing that Shockley was was a jerk <laughs> and wanting to go their own way. Shockley, one of the, the inventors of the transistor, but an extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult human being. Um, and as it, it turns out, a eugenicist and racist and much other things. And the, I mean, in, in many regards, you know, I, that kind of origin story of Silicon Valley, it w was very prophetic that you had someone who was a, w was potentially a brilliant technologist, but was such a, a, a an impossible human being that they limited their own efficacy. Um, but he had grown up in Palo Alto, which is the reason he had returned there. And uh, this group of eight engineers, which Shockley called the Traitorous Eight, and they wore as a badge of honor, uh, went to form a subsidiary of an East Coast company called Fairchild, Fairchild Gambling Instrument. And they, uh, th that group became Fairchild Semiconductor. And Fairchild Semiconductor, it, and, and this is to me, like that is the true origin of Silicon Valley is at Fairchild. And the at Fairchild, they very much invented the future. Um, and um, with, uh, with, Gordon Moore and, and Andy Grove, and actually, uh, I, I our board member Pierre Lamond um, was actually at Fairchild, um, and um, it, wild to hear uh, Pierre's stories of being at Fairchild, and you know this is at a time when the in the 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 transistor is brand new, the the integrated circuit is being invented, and these these are the things that become the foundation for every single thing we do is is ultimately due to the to the, the semiconductor advances in Silicon Valley in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. So that that sense of innovation and of venturing in boldly into the unknown with a with a group of fellow engineers, that to me is Silicon Valley. That is the true spirit of Silicon Valley. And it's it, it you know it's tragic to me that, that but but maybe it's also right there in the origins that that spirit is is corrupted by this kind of lust for mammon and and material wealth which is like and i mean like listen nothing material wealth like fine great it's ultimately like it's not the meaning of it all and the and to me as as a technologist um i am much more interested in in the the kinds of things that, that the breakthroughs that we can have that can serve us all, right? That, that that can serve all of of humanity. And uh, you know, I, I read a, a a terrific book uh, years ago in the Sloan Technology series, which is a great series of books. Uh, a book called Dream Reaper on the the invention of the birotor combines by Craig Canine, and the birotor combine being a new kind of combine. Uh, the combine combines reaping and threshing, and it's as much a, a history of agricultural technology as it is anything else. And agricultural technology in the, in the, in the history of, of agricultural technology, something that we should all like take real appreciation of because that is the reason that you and I are not in the fields today. It, it, it is, and ultimately it is innovation that has 
allowed us to to not just survive but thrive and 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 the history of humanity is a history of that technological innovation and so to me that's what silicon valley is it's a, a more than a place um it is that very much that spirit of innovation and of solving hard problems but i, I you know it, it it is um it is true and unfortunate that it's been uh, th that has been distorted um, over the years. I would like to see Silicon Valley return to its roots uh, of real deep innovation and solving some of our most pressing problems. Okay. But there are two things there that I'd like to pick on. One later, which is at the core of the conversation that I want to have with you, which is hard work, uh, software co-design. So I presume, and please don't elaborate now on this, but I presume that the Fairchild era was more about hardware than software. I'm, I'm fairly sure there was firmware involved, but uh, I get, I think the importance of software came later for everyone in the world. Yep. But also picking up on what you just said, apart from, we got, regardless of the perverse incentives that now dominate Silicon Valley, like you just mentioned, there's also a sense of um, a dawn of an era, right? And limited by physics, right? You, you mentioned in that talk and another talks in the talk that you recently gave that, um, uh, open firmware uh, convention that uh, what more Moore's law is ending, right? I'm not sure if it's dead, but it's ending. So there is a limit. There is a you know a a, a, a an, an end of a cycle, right? Regardless again of of how perverse incentives have, have become right. So I guess how does it, it, it how does it feel that you want to uh, embody the spirit of the early age uh, Silicon Valley? when the limitations of physics are, you know, starting to surface and become really patterned? Where's where the next innovation going to happen? Well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, Moore's law was was an observation made by Gordon Moore originally in, in, in 1965. Um, and it, I mean, in the uh, and Moore's law was not even, uh, I mean, it wasn't even codified, really. I mean, it was kind of deposited in Gordon Moore's original 1965 paper. But Moore's law is not a law of physics. And in fact, the, the, the at any given moment, if you had you know t took your time machine and traveled into Silicon Valley and asked what is the state of Moore's law, people would tell you that like Moore's law can't last more than another couple of years. Um, Moore's law will you know Moore's law will and 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 now I think that all of that said like no 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 this time we actually are at this time really. Um, and I, but but I think it's important to realize that like that transistor density, and again, Moore's law was could have been rightfully conflated with uh, transistor speed and density and economics. My my kind of thrust has been that Moore's law, and I gave a talk a couple years ago, wondering it, you know, what was it actually Wright's law all along? Um, so uh, Theodore Wright was um, an economist um, at a at an aircraft company. Um, in in the 30s and observed that the more we make things, the cheaper they get um, because we, we get better at it. And if you look at Wright's law um, is uh, it explains what, what the economics of transistors arguably better than Moore's law does. Um, and so I, I actually think that like it's not that Moore's law, it, it, it's just like the end of Denard scaling in 2006. So Denard scaling, you know, for years, the the, the 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 clock rate of your CPU would double every eighteen months, um, and it was you know if you came up in that era, as I did, it was remarkable because I mean they they had to actually 
make new computers go slower to be able to play old video games that had old timing loops in them. And, you know, I, I don't know who the marketing genius who was who instead of adding a go slow button, they added a turbo button and the turbo button was always depressed. And if you wanted to slow it down, you would, which was, again, an act of genius. Um, that was the the kind of the halcyon days of uh, of Denard scaling. Denard scaling ended in two thousand six, and we the, the 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 CPU that that we're running on are really no faster no faster from a clock perspective than the CPUs we were running on um, fifteen years ago. What has shifted is that, but the transistor density has continued to climb. So we've got more and more cores on that die. Um, we've found ways to take advantage of those cores. And now with with transistor density now itself slowing, um, we're forced to innovate again. We're forced to innovate differently again. So we are, um, you know, I, I think that even Moore's Law, I think you can kind of see it continuing for another couple of generations. But I, I, I do think that we are going to shift our focus. Um, and I believe we're going to shift our focus to how do we, how are, do we make better use of these computational resources. There's a lot of waste, frankly, that has been hidden by the rising tide of, of Moore's law. And there are a lot of things that we can do to be smarter in software and systems. And we, those are the kinds of things that we've been exploring post the end of the Denard scaling. There's a bunch, uh, there are a bunch of other things that we can go do. And I think that when you, and I mean, indeed, I think you can argue that the the, the end of Denard scaling has prompted software to get more efficient. There was an era where like, it just felt like software was getting more and more morbidly obese. And you can view things like Rust and the rise of Rust as a real response to that, where actually like getting us back to a leaner artifact um, and getting us back to artifacts where we do care about memory sizing, we do care about text sizing, program text sizing. Um, and so, I, I, I mean, I, to me, it's exciting um, and because it means that we're um, the problem is going to shift again. Um, and um, strictly speaking, strictly from an oxide perspective, um, we believe that one of the ramifications of that is that we need to stop building computers to throw out after a year and a half or two years. And what has historically been true in the server space is that they've got very much have that personal computer zeitgeist where the, the the machine itself is kind of junk the machine that's surrounding the cpu because a better cpu is going to replace it in a year and a half or two years it's like well if a cpu is actually not something that is going to last you know a year and a half or two years but is going to last more like three or five or seven how would that change the way that you architect the system around it and uh we think that there are a bunch of things that you would do differently um that to, to reflect a machine that is going to be uh, more durable. Um, and there are a bunch of things that you putatively can't afford to do if you're going to throw it out after a year and a half that you that you can't afford to do if it's something that's going to be really sedimented. So before we move on to, again, this, this the, the, the core of what I, you know, when I want to pivot the conversation, which is exactly, you mentioned it outside, there's no better way of embodying, you know, the, the ideals by which you want to, uh, rule your life that that actually taking it to applying them and taking them to practice and you founded a company that is about hardware and software code design or hardware and so forth but you mentioned rust i'm I, i've got an unpopular opinion about 
I have nothing against Rust. It's just that there's always been C and C++. Uh, so people effectively caring about optimization and lightweight software, if you wish, and, and, uh, and getting the most out of um, uh, hardware. That would be an oversimplification of what C++ is about. But in the context of this conversation, I think it would be a good summary of it. And it's around 90% of the code that runs the world, and that arguably almost around half of the code that runs critical infrastructure, if not more, from the latest state of the lab corp. And it's not going anywhere. I mean, I'm not sure what your opinion is about, but I see a lot of optimism about Rust, and yet, uh, like 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 we were talking about Twitter eventually, the, the, the pull, the gravitas of C++ is going to be strong enough for it to hopefully, and this is my opinion or my sort of like wishful thinking, it will evolve to something that makes it safer. So I guess, what's your opinion on that? Because again, there, there was always a, the, the firmware community was always strong on C and C++, right? Correct me if I'm you, you're probably more, more of an expert than I am in that. Uh, C primarily, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I've spent my career doing OS kernel development, so I've been right and and I, I, I was implementing and, and, you know, when I actually started my career, uh, in the, the, the mid nineties and going into OS kernel development, I was being told that like C was dead, um, and that it was all going to be C++ and then especially Java. Um, and when, when, with the rise of Java, we wanted to put Java everywhere, and you know, I was at Sun during 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 the 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 heyday of Java. I mean, we ate at a cafe that was literally called the Java Java, uh, and they Sun was oh, now now Facebook now Meta, I guess. Um, but um, Sun wanted to do Java microprocessors and Java operating systems, and like that didn't make sense to me because um, what I saw was actually the the systems needed to deliver highest performance, and C was the way to do that. Not even C plus plus, frankly, but C. Um, the, but the, the, the problem with C, um, and, and then, this, and then it, it mean, especially C++, C++ has to me, to me, C++ was always the worst of all worlds where you end up with all of the unsafety of, of C, but with the ability to create these abstractions much faster than you could debug them. So you end up with these systems in C, in C++ that are effectively undebuggable. Um, we never use C++ in the operating system kernel. Um, we, uh, I, I think that as true for, for most OS kernels do not, aren't, don't have C++. Um, so I never saw, no, I know I, C++ obviously metastasized at, at Google and, and beyond. And, and there was a lot of important C++ out there, but to me, um, I had written about a hundred thousand lines of C++ and had decided that I was writing no more. Um, because I, I, I felt there, there are, uh, what C++ gave me was so little um, and it, it it didn't give me anything with respect to actual safety. Um, it took a lot away in terms of, of, of runtime and then especially complexity. Um, and C++, I mean, uh, uh, C++, it, I mean, it, it's like supersize me for abstractions. Um, if you, you recall the supersize me movie where, where he's, you know, the, the, and um, the, it, it, to me, it's like abstraction junk food, um, and it it creates the ability to kind of uh, again create these abstractions very quickly, but then but not be able to debug them. Um, so uh, for me, I was at a bit of a quandary because I was struggling to find what is that thing that will replace C. Because there are a lot of problems with C, um, and the, and I say this as someone who, uh, um, again, I have written a lot of C. I know how to write memory safe C. 
um, memory and memory safety is one of those things where where um, it, it the the challenge of memory safety is not at like you know the it, it, freeing what you allocate is not hard and it's not hard to avoid things like double freeze in general. Um, what becomes much much trickier is when you have an interface boundary and you I want to call into your code. Well, now we're going to, the language isn't going to really help us. So we're going to have to have a contract and we can, with, and that contract's going to be implicit. And, you know, the way we would write C, we were pretty disciplined about it. And we had a bunch of patterns where you could reliably know that, you know, when you want to create one of them, we wrote very effectively object-oriented C, where if you want to create a, a, a foo, you're going to call foo underbar create, it's going to return a foo t. Any operations on foo, we're going to take a foo t pointer to operate upon, and then there's going to be a foo destroy that is going to actually in implicitly free the foo, which is fine, but very much relies on convention and doesn't actually allow you to do things that are really sophisticated. So in particular, you, you know, one of the things as I was first first experimenting with Rust and realizing that, that with the experience that I had is that my very naive Rust outperformed my handwritten C. And I'm like, why is this? And the, in the particular program that I was writing, the reason for that is that in my C, for this particular data structure, I used a balanced binary tree, as you do. I used a, a balanced binary tree library that we wrote years ago based on ABL trees that is extremely robust. And I can use very quickly. Um, the in Rust, you use a B tree if you want to. There is no, there's no red black tree. I'm sure there's a red black tree implementation somewhere, an ABL tree implementation somewhere. But the kind of the default standard collection data structure that you use is a B tree. A B tree is a better data structure than a balanced binary tree. It is a more cache efficient data structure. Uh, there are lots of reasons, but a B tree is really gnarly to implement. And indeed, it's like where is the C library? to implement a B-tree. And it, it, I mean, it is obviously possible to implement a B-tree in C. It is really, really difficult because a B-tree fundamentally relies upon moving the location of memory objects. That's the way a B-tree works. And when an object is gonna be promoted up into, into a larger node, it's gonna be the memory for that object is going to be moved. And this is where the contract breaks down. Because if we've got a foo library that takes a foo create, a foo destroy, you rely on the fact that that library is not going to change the location of that foo underneath you. Be because you ultimately are, are, you've exposed the innards, the implementation, even with careful C, you expose the implementation. So the problem with that is C, by its nature, very much inhibits composability. And C++ papers over this. You get marginally better composability, but you haven't actually solved the safety problem at all. So it's very easy to have a C++ system that operates across purposes or site faults. And you're like, where the hell am I right now? And it's it very, very hard to debug. And do, do you envision do you envision a future so i guess i guess your ideal scenario for the future is every c and c plus plus code replaced by rust yes i mean not necessarily okay uh but could you envision a a even a medium term scenario in which uh coding with c and c plus plus with a ai code companion 
guiding best practices, principles, whatever you may want to call them, uh, enforcing those actually. <laughs> you mean like ChatGPT to help navigate memory safety? I mean, Jesus Christ! Is it, no, <laughs> no. I mean, I, I mean that's its own punishment. That's its own punishment. I, I, I honestly, I would not try. Unfortunately, I'm the parent of teenagers, and uh, I know that there are certain ideas that you don't talk a teenager out of because it's like you. No, go out. You know what? In fact, I insist that you do that because you need to learn a life lesson here and. I, um, me describing why that's that's a bad idea is not going to be retained. You experimenting with this bad idea, and and so you you go in as a parent, you kind of constantly have the like, is this bad idea going to get you killed or injured? Like that one, I need to intervene in. But if it's not going to get you killed and injured, um, you know, if you you want to you know shave your head or you know the diet blue. Yeah, burn burn a finger with a candle, whatever. Yeah, you know, and so. Chat GBT to navigate memory safety, I very much put in that category of no, I, I in fact I insist you go do that. Um I, I think that will that will be an emphatically the punishment. Uh no, that's a that, I mean that is a that is a true that that is uh that is not a solution to the memory safety problem. Okay. But but again, I would encourage anyone who is feeling that desire in their loins, I would please Go act on it. Just don't inflict the rest of the system you create. If anyone is coding C, C++ with ChatGPT as a code companion or Cody or Code Whisperer or any other co-pilot, whatever, let us know and uh, uh, yeah, we'd like to know. So let's go back to the... to. So yes, exactly. So you, the, the, There's no better way to embody those principles uh, that we were described at the beginning that found in a company, which is Oxide. By the way, Today it has been an important day at Oxide, right? A huge milestone has happened. You just told me before we started recording. Can you describe what the company is and what happened today? Yeah, so uh, today it hasn't happened yet. It's this evening, this afternoon. Um, the, 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 the first uh, Oxide rack will be loaded into a crate and headed out to its first customer. So we've been... Can you tell us where that customer is? Is this in a... In, in in a town like Portland, Maine, or something, or is it a big city? That, that exactly. I would want to respect their own privacy, but um, the the um, we've got um, the, we, we fortunately, you know, when you um, when you solve a hard problem like this, um, and and you really broadcast that you intend to solve it, um, people present themselves, and you've got technologists present themselves to help you do it. Um, and customers present themselves and say, "Hey, we've we've been looking for. I uh, thank God someone is finally solving this problem. And those that have been been suffering with Dell and HPE and Supermicro um, are are uh, excited that we are taking on. So we've our earliest customers are in that category of folks that have been been suffering. You took investment from 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 capital, but you take investment to also for these initial." Uh, customers that trust your vision, right? So, Absolutely. So, what, what, what? So, tell us, what did you ship? Uh, ship? Uh, what, what are the principles that went into that uh, rack? Like, it is a long work, but what, what are the principles that you envisioned and that that are now embodied in that rack that shipped uh, that is shipping later today? 
Yeah, in particular, what we so I mean a couple of them. Um, we are at, at the, the kind of highest level. We are trying to bring modernity to on-prem infrastructure. So, core thesis of the company: Jeff Bezos is not going to own and operate, or I guess Andy Jassy now is not going to own and operate every computer on the planet. That there exist reasons to run your own servers in your own data center, um, and it's not for everybody, certainly. And we are big public cloud proponents, especially when you're small, when you're just getting started, public cloud is great. Elast and, and in particular, where we are huge believers in elastic infrastructure. You should be able to hit an API endpoint and go provision a virtual computer and a virtual NIC and virtual storage and be able to, to hydrate that with, by hitting API endpoints and using Terraform and so on. So huge believers in that. Um, what we are, what we are also huge believers in is that there are reasons to run that in your own DC. Though that those may be uh, security reasons, they may be latency reasons, uh, they may be uh, regulatory reasons, they may be risk management reasons, and they may be economic reasons. So, uh, as it turns out, if you're going to use a lot of compute, just like if you're going to use a lot of anything, it's generally a better idea to own it. If you're going to use a lot of compute, you actually don't want to rent it; you want to own it. And I think increasingly, you know, it used to be true way back in the day, at every AWS reInvent, a price cut would be announced. And they did it for so long that there was kind of this entrenched idea that the cloud is only going to get cheaper. And we knew it's like, because I worked for a public cloud company at the time, it's like, that's going to have its limits. And the, it, it you know, reInvent is not about the price cuts anymore. No, you know, the, the it, we, we don't really get those big price cut announcements. Um, and certainly there are some things like bandwidth that have never seen a price cut. And what people are realizing is like, actually, this is pretty expensive. And it's like, yeah, this is, you know, it, the, the kudos to the execution of Amazon for giving people the idea that public cloud was a terrible business that no one wanted to be in when it actually is a very, it's a high market business it, and it, it underwrites the rest of the retailer. So the, um, we see that, that economics as, a, as increasingly a driver, but honestly, we see all of those drivers. Um, and th there are uh, the, the, the security and risk management latency in addition to regulatory compliance and in addition to, to economics. And, you know, each of those kinds of folks has got kind of a different angle that, that, that they are bringing. All of them share uh, a common frustrations, though, in the the state of the art for on-prem computing um, is uh, important. It is it 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 looks like the personal computer because it is a personal computer. This is something that basically hasn't the actual machine architecture has not evolved. The CPUs evolved. The CPU is very sophisticated. Has gotten better and better and better. But the machine around it, it is trapped in time. And to say nothing of like the software that you want to run on top of that, if you want to actually, what you want to deliver is elastic infrastructure. You being, I, I am the, the platform group in a, in a company. And what I need, I'm responsible for is that infrastructure for my developers. And I'm trying to do that on-prem. If you're doing that on-prem, or I need to do that on-prem for these other reasons. If you're doing that on-prem, you're stuck in the, 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 these legacy machine architectures. And then what do you do for software? It's like they, those things don't come with software. When I go, when you buy a Dell or an HPE system or a supermicro system, 
there's actually, I mean, sadly, it's actually even worse than that. They do come with software. The software they come with is this is this atrocious firmware running the baseboard management controller or the ILO or the iTrack. And the, the, the software that actually controls the computer is uh, <laughs> not great, to put it euphemistically. It's got a lot of problems associated with it. But it's actually, so I've got a bunch of software that I actually don't want. It's kind of in my way. Then I don't have the software that I do need, namely the software that I actually want to be able to run not just an operating system, but an actual true proper elastic infrastructure. There's no, I have got, I am responsible to actually go and develop that distributed system on top of that, whether I'm buying an off-the-shelf product from the likes of VMware, or I'm trying to to, to tack into an open source project, the likes of OpenStack. Um, it, it is, it's pain and suffering as far as the eye can see, because when that system doesn't behave, and when my developers say, hey, I, you know, I, I, this provision that I had, I, you know, I went to go provision this VM and it's taken like 10 minutes. What's going on? Or the I can't provision it at all. It's like everybody points fingers at everybody else. So VMware is pointing fingers back at Dell. Dell's pointing fingers back at, at Cisco. Cisco's pointing. And the, the problem is that, that the end user of this is the one who has had to do this integration and is suffering with the fact that these things weren't actually designed together. There is no co-design in the the, the 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 computer that's been designed by the Dell HP Supermicro, the, the 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 elastic infrastructure that's been designed or evolved, um, the, the the networking infrastructure. All of these things are operating across purposes. So I, the kind of the big thesis for Oxide was we want to slice through all that. We want to truly co-design hardware and software. We want to use that to deliver a coherent system and we want to that 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 out of the box delivers elastic infrastructure you should power it on provide it the necessary configuration to speak with your network and you should be provisioning vms doesn't sound like like that shouldn't be uh as hard a problem as it is but the the reality is these layers have ossified to the point that in order to actually create that system You've got to demolish all the, the 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 boundaries between between these layers, uh, and there's a lot of hardware, but then there's a lot of software, and um, so that's what we've been building. That's a, the, that's been the been the thesis of Oxide, um, and that's what that's what we've been on the the journey to build. And uh, you know, one of the challenges we've we've had is what is the minimum viable product? I mean, every startup has this challenge. What is the minimum viable product? And one of the challenges that we have that a lot of deep tech or hard tech startups have is the minimum viable product is pretty big. Um, and in particular, part of the problem with the Dell HP Supermicro is that, or the Cisco Arista Juniper, is they are delivering this sliver. And when you are only delivering that one U or two U server, you actually, it's very hard to assert control over the rack. And what, our, our belief was and remains the minimum viable product is a rack scale computer. So that includes the PowerShell, PowerShell controller, it includes the switch. So we developed, in addition to developing our own compute sled, we developed our own networking switch. Um, you know, so, which is, uh, you know, we joke that we're nine startups within one startup. I, I, there are days when it feels like more like two dozen um, because we, we uh, we've got, um, we've taken on a lot of very challenging problems, um, but 
the upside of having done it that way and of having co-designed the switch with the compute sled, with the, the cable backplane, with the rack, is that we can truly integrate this stuff together and solve some of these really thorny problems and deliver to the end user a turnkey experience. So it, it, you can view it as, I mean, and, and you know, our most successful uh, products in computing have done this, right? This is this is very much an Apple ethos, right? This is where this is this is what Apple has historically done. Now, the, where we diverge is we also believe that you, when you take this fully integrated approach, you there is a lot to be gained and nothing to be lost as far as we're concerned by being completely transparent. So we are, everything we do at Oxide is open source. Um, everything we do is is out there for people to see and understand. We've been very transparent about how we're building it. We're not secretive at all um, because we want people to understand um, what we've done and the approach we've taken. Um, where people d disagreed with it, we've always wanted to hear about it. I think what, what technologists have found um, as they've waded into the details of Oxide is, okay, finally, someone has has designed it the way I would design it. And that's because we have pulled in a bunch of folks that for different aspects of the system have a belief in how this, this should be done. And that's what's reflected in this Oxide rack. Building on this, um, you've manifested in the past also, not, not criticisms, but concerns about the... Um how fully open source uh, the Risk Five project is, or Risk yep, V. Yeah. I never know how to pronounce it. To be honest, I think it's Risk Five, right? Risk Five. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, you build your hardware mostly on AMD uh, um, architectures. Correct me if I was. AM, yeah, AMD Milan for the CPU, um, ARM uh, Cortex M7 for the service processor, uh, M33 for the root of trust, um, and then uh, Intel Tofino for the top of rack silicon. Um, and then we are using a bunch of other components from other vendors for different, but th those are kind of the, the, the major computational components, certainly. And how much collaboration have you found from those providers to open source everything that is run on it? Has it been difficult? Uh, they've been great. I mean, they've been really, and I think that, you know, um, Fortunately, you know, they see the the same thing that we see, um, that this lowest layer of platform enablement software has, it's been a real problem that it's remained proprietary. Um, and I mean, to take uh, AMD, you know, to their credit, um, they are, uh, the, the open cell, something they announced a couple of weeks ago, um, which is the, the, this lowest level silicon initialization library, um, and they've really committed to, we are not using OpenSill exactly, but we are extremely supportive of that effort where AMD has, is uh, pioneering um, open silicon enablement. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, Intel too has been very receptive to that. So, I mean, I think it, it's been, uh, which is not a future that one would have envisioned, you know, a decade ago. Um, where, and then there certainly are folks that still view this stuff as ultra, ultra proprietary. Um, when we make decisions, that's something that we factor in. Um, so we really look to what is a company's software and firmware disposition. We use Chelsea for our next, um, in part because Chelsea, we love Chelsea's software disposition and Chelsea has a, the Nick, even a Nick 
that uh, is not a smart neck, a traditional neck. There's a lot of sophistication in the neck. And Chelsea has been exemplary in getting that those drivers open source and and having a driver model that, that's got longevity to it and so on. So that's something that we actually really looked at when we're evaluating these different components for the rack. We look at a, at a vendor's disposition with respect to that. Going back to your, to your product, in terms of, I don't know, I'll mention a few areas of, of the product that you're shipping, memory management, networking, IO pressures or whatever. Tell me the three things that you feel more proud about what you've achieved in terms of design that are might be innovative or optimizations or, or of, of previous things, but uh, in those terms, anything? Uh, yeah, boy, there is just, there is, there is so much um, because we have, when you take a clean sheet of paper, um, you know, this thing is so ossified that you, that, that, that would I say the, the, the kind of the extant server ecosystem and infrastructure is so ossified that you can't just take a, a, a little bit of it. You kind of have to take the whole thing, which is what we've done. So, as, but when you take the whole thing, it's not one innovation. It's like, it, there are so many different ones. Um, and, um, you know, to, to, I mean, so I, well, first of all, I'm, uh, the fact that we have been able to pull off our own server design, the fact that that our uh, our compute sled has no bias in it, there is no AMI bias in the system. So uh, th 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 this is a dimension in which we are regrettably total pioneers because you think that, that the rest of the industry would do this, but even the hyperscalers have suffered at the hands of these kind of traditional bias vendors that are responsible for those lowest level silicon enablement, platform enablement. Um, we have no bias. We go, we, uh, it, the, the first instruction after the AMD PSP executes is our operating system as it pulls up the rest of the system. Um, the watching that come to fruition. I mean, so these things boot like a rocket. Um, they, they spend most of their time training dims about a minute and 12 seconds to train the terabyte of dims. Um, when we come out of dim training, uh, it's, 20 seconds to pull the rest of the system up, 30 seconds to pull the rest of the system up. And like servers don't traditionally boot anywhere near that fast. Um, servers take a long time to boot. Are there any trade-offs from removing the bias that are, that are uh, to be factored yes. in? The, the trade-off is um, we uh, that we are responsible for getting this thing to work. And when it, you know, uh, that is the danger. The danger is that you, and actually when we took that path, we knew it was going to be a steeper path and a harder path. What I did not realize was it was ultimately in the limit. It was a faster path um, because we controlled our own fate. It was very, very hard. And we have an extraordinary team that uh, in, in, that got very good at inhaling all documentation on the part uh, and then some. Um, but um, ultimately we were able to deliver a platform faster by having control over our own software. So that's been, um, that, in a, that has been a decision that we, uh, I have been grateful for many, many, many times over. Um, and, uh, so I think the, the ability to do it, the fact that we have, uh, eliminated the BMC replaced it with that, a proper service processor. It runs an operating system that we developed an all rust operating system. Um, called Hubris, appropriately enough, um, because of the Hubris developer and operating system. Speaking personally, um, the um, I have spent a lot of time on the debugger for Hubris, which we call humility, appropriately enough. Um, and 
um, watching that become really load bearing for us has been a, 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 a source of personal pride for me. I mean, part of what I love about the oxide rack is that uh, to a, 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 a to an employee at Oxide, everyone can look at the rack and point to an aspect of it that is theirs. An aspect of it is like, I did that. That like it, the, the reason it behaves that way, the reason it has that decision is because of something that I did. And a lot of that stuff is like, is subtle. It's something that only an engineer really appreciates. Um, but, and, and there are, you know, countless examples of that. And it's a lot of fun to watch that all come together. Um, I love the aesthetics of it. You know, the, the, the rack is, it's, it's beautiful. And we don't really view racks as, a, it, we, you know, servers are kind of like sooty and loud. And, uh, you know, our server is beautifully quiet. Um, we, we use, uh, one of the very first design decisions that we made, um, based on, uh, we, some of the early folks you're talking to, including the uh, technologist named Trammell Hudson, if you don't know Trammell, um, just electrifying technologist who's really been a pioneer in, in open systems. And, uh, Trammell said, Hey, you know, you really want to look at what, um, the Facebook folks did with 80 millimeter fans. They use these taller enclosures with these we bigger fans, 80 millimeter fans. And that seems like a good idea to me. And as we looked into it, it's like, yeah, that's a really good idea to get up off this one U, two U kind of tyranny to get up to this. And we've got a hundred millimeter tall enclosure that fits that 80 millimeter fan. 80 millimeter fans move a lot more air and they do it with a lot less energy. So as a result, and we worked with our fan provider, San Yudanki, to allow our fans to operate at 2000 RPM at 0% PWM rather than 5000 RPM, which say like when the thing is at its lowest setting, how fast is it moving? By default, that was at 5000 RPM, but that was like way more air movement than we needed. So it, it operates at 2000 RPM at 0% at 0% PWM. 2000 RPM is quiet. And so when you like when you're next to the oxide rack, and in fact, when we went into compliance to actually to, to for radiated emissions, the folks at the, the compliance lab, they do, they see a lot of servers and they're like, uh, are you sure it's on? Because it's so quiet. And you look at the draw and you're like, okay, no, it's definitely like, it's definitely drawing like 15 kilowatts, but it's quiet. And if you go to the back, you can feel the heat pouring off it. You're like, okay, no, it's, it's on. It's definitely cranking. But we've become so accustomed to the violence of these 15,000 RPM fans and they are so loud. And, and on the one hand, like we didn't design this rack to be acoustically pleasing. I mean, it's not designed like that is not what we set out to do. But on the other hand, the, the acoustics of a, the, the, the extant data center, the acoustics are this it, it, it's almost like an odor. It is this visceral reminder that this domain has has suffered for lack of real systemic holistic thinking. Um, and it's, it's, if any of it inadvertently, what I'm hearing is that you set out to deliver something that is a pleasure to work with, right? Whether it's from an acoustic level, a visually appealing level, or from the from the actual value that it provides by you know. Uh, enabling elastic infrastructure to run in it uh, fast and, and sort of like uh, yeah, that's exactly it. And it's like, and you know, we wanted to build something that we 
that we'd be proud of. And, you know, we, and a foundation that we can go build on. Um, and I think that we are, what's exciting about this is it's not, that this is not the, and today's a terrific milestone with, with the, this first rack being crated up. Um, the, the crate, by the way, its own engineering marvel because it's like it, it, to it, it, to ship a rack with the the sled. It's been a huge amount of of, of work from a huge number of folks. Um, but it's like this is not this is very much the beginning. Um, and we now have a uh, a platform upon which we are going to just you know like AWS. Circa, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, where they really saw the ability to go build all these additional services. We got the ability to go build a bunch of that and be, be able to really deliver modernity to uh, to the on-prem operator. And this is a perfect segue for the last question, actually. I, I know you, from other conversations we've had in the podcast and, and interviews and stuff, that you, for now at least, uh, you've discarded the home lab sort of like market segment. You're not going to ship anything for that, right? Uh, for companies, you're going to ship. So I guess, uh, what about the new trend on GPUs and um, I guess high, high compute uh, requirements, um, uh, services and uh, LLMs and stuff like that. Do you see that as a, an opportunity for you guys to actually intervene there? Yeah, so it's super interesting. We're obviously like everybody. We've been, uh, the GP, GPU has become very important. Um, we, uh, you know, needed to go solve the compute storage network problem. Um, before we tackled the GPGPU problem. So we have not tackled the GPGPU problem. This is this has got it's got CPU, it's got computer, it's got uh, it's got networking, it's got storage. Um the we're being pretty careful about how we go into that. Um the um so honestly, uh we struggle to see how we can deliver real oxide value with NVIDIA. I mean all Kudos to NVIDIA, you know, obviously, um, for uh, really having the vision and the tenacity there. NVIDIA is a very proprietary company, um, it, and that's not really consistent with what we want to go deliver. And our belief is that we at Oxide really need to take responsibility for the, the experience, and we can't do that when we've got a deeply proprietary partner um, that has its own ambitions. And ultimately, like NVIDIA, I mean, you know, boy, if the ARM acquisition had gone through, God only knows where where humanity would have been led because NVIDIA has the idea of actually reproprietarizing all of compute. Um, and it and it's it's a problem. And, you know, hey, NVIDIA, if you're listening, like maybe you could experiment with like truly open sourcing things instead of open sourcing a trampoline in your own proprietary firmware. How about you actually open source a stack, go to truly open designs. Um, because I, I, I think that it is, uh, it makes it really hard for people to integrate in NVIDIA, with the, in NVIDIA GPGPU into a broader system and then take responsibility end to end responsibility. So, um, I don't think it's going to be NVIDIA. It's not impossible, but I don't think it's going to be NVIDIA. And if it's on video, like, well, okay, who, you know, and there, there's some interesting folks out there that are taking some interesting swings to this problem um, that we are are really paying very close attention to. Um, but what we need to figure out is how do we go partner with someone to really deliver oxide value? And oxide value is the ability to for the end user to to have total visibility into how that infrastructure is being used where the power is going in the system, where the heat is being generated in the system, 
where the performance is in the system, because we want to be able to, to make rack level decisions about where things are scheduled, where they run and provide visibility into those systems. So the operator can know that my elastic infrastructure is doing what, what it has set out to do. And in order to be able to deliver that kind of value to the customer, we need to have solutions that are much more open than what we have today. So paying very close attention to a bunch of different companies out there. Um, we've had a lot of very interesting conversations with folks, but uh, for the moment, that still lies in our future. Brian, I hope that lorry that left your headquarters this morning, this, that truck with uh, your product was the first of many, many. And uh, I only wish you the best of luck for, for Oxide. And uh, and I thank you for joining us today in this conversation. Yeah, uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's really terrific to be with you.